Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. My guest on today's podcast is my friend Randy L., a relatively young man who got sober before he was even old enough to take a legal drink. Randy's childhood was ruled by compulsive behavior, limited attention, and hyperactivity. Later, diagnosed with ADHD, Randy was treated with meds that worked but left him craving a calmer and steadier mental state. He soon found relief in alcohol and marijuana. Though the damage occurred only during his teenage years, Randy's rise to full-blown addiction was both rapid and severe. He exploited every opportunity to drink and use in high school and early college. Increasingly isolated from his family, his behavior soon deteriorated into that of a drug-selling addict and alcoholic, whose flawed belief that he was getting away with it fooled nobody but himself. Fortunately, his family arranged a very dramatic rescue plan for Randy that landed him in a 90-day treatment program from which he emerged into accelerating participation in AA. At only 20 years of age, Randy relaunched his life by getting a sponsor, working the steps, going to meetings, and establishing a close fellowship in the program with older men who taught him how to live sober. Though Randy labels himself as a high-bottom alcoholic, the work he's done in the program demonstrates the deep dive he's taken in understanding his own life and the behavior that influenced his personal growth and success. Of particular insight was a highly traumatic event he experienced when he was six years old that greatly informed his thinking and actions throughout his sobriety. Today, Randy's total commitment to AA, his young family and the business he runs, makes for a full and busy life. But the men he's both sponsored and befriended will tell you that he's a man of passion and empathy who is always ready to help. From first-hand knowledge, I know that to be true, and I'm confident you'll find his story both compelling and uplifting. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to my good friend and AA brother, Randy L. My name's Randy. I'm an alcoholic and addict. Hey, Randy. I'm glad you could be here today. Thanks for joining me. So, you're one of those ANDA guys, aren't you? An alcoholic and, and an addict. Yeah, I... You know, it's funny because I was an addict really first and found myself to be an alcoholic second. Yeah. Uh, I became a believer that uh-huh. at the bottom of the bottle was my drug yeah. of choice. Yeah, I get that. You know, my my story really was more one of compulsivity and addiction around drugs. Uh-huh. And, you know, that was the high that I wanted. Uh-huh. Um, but when it wasn't available, 
I would use alcohol mm -hmm. as a substitution. You've joined a really august group of people who I've interviewed. Maybe more than half of them have the same kind of story where they started out maybe with both alcohol and drugs, but along the way, especially as they were younger, drugs were actually easier to obtain than alcohol. First time I tried drugs, I was 16 years old. Uh huh. Was at a party. I, I had moved to Houston and uh, was at a party with a lot of people I didn't know. A Coke can was being passed hmm. around. It was a drinking party, but a Coke can was being passed around where people were smoking weed with a Coke can. And I'd heard about it, but never seen it. Mm -hmm. I just kind of mm -hmm. jumped in line because it was the thing to do. Uh, try it the first time and literally had no effect, but felt uh, camaraderie, felt some acceptance, felt a part of, and I was, I was new to Houston at the time and um, quickly sought it out a second time. And it wasn't because, you know, of a feeling of effect. It was actually a feeling of acceptance, but ended up the second time getting high and, and just loving the feeling. So you were doing it with the crowd when you first started and you were 16. I didn't really start smoking dope till I was late 17, almost 18, when I was about ready to go into college. Lots of people start a lot earlier. Um, so prior to sixteen, what what were you doing? Did you what was what was your your family of origin like? Do you have any uh, alcoholism or drug addiction going back in your family? No, I mean, I what I would say is that there is definitely cases of just overall compulsivity. Uh huh. Um, I get it. Yeah. But I was, you know, I broke the mold in my family. I I was. You know, first to rehab, first to sobriety. Uh -huh. um, and in fact, uh, it wasn't till years later that I met uh, a cousin of mine who's actually further ahead of uh, me in sobriety. Mm -hmm. But Felice is a cousin of mine, and we met mm -hmm. at uh, George Jay's. Yeah, so it was, it, but you know, it was, I, I, I was the first one. I didn't have a lot of experience, I didn't know what I was getting into. Uh -huh. um, and in fact, for me, the first drug I was actually introduced to was prescription. Uh, you know, I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 15. And what okay. they did with me is they gave me prescription speed. Okay. And um, they sped me up and I hated like it. Like Adderall or something like that? So it was Dexedrine. At the time, they prescribed it for me, and it worked great. Uh -huh. I mean, it, would, it definitely set me on straight and made me super focused in school. But the problem is I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. Mm -hmm. I was jittery. Mm -hmm. And what happened was when I found weed, I could start regulating myself. Hmm. Mm -hmm. So I could go up with the prescriptions they were giving mm -hmm. me. And, you know, after school or at night, I started smoking weed with friends and there was a lot that was going on there that I loved. Mm -hmm. After moving here to Houston, it was the feeling of acceptance in a, where I didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. I could quickly adapt into the group. Yeah. As long as you were, you know, sitting in the circle or passing around, you know, you were instantly accepted. But the other thing was, is that I started that sort of chemical balancing of myself. And that, of course, escalated as time went on. Uh -huh. But I found a tremendous amount of comfort in calming my mind and slowing myself down. You were calming your mind and slowing yourself down from the speeding up that you were getting from the dexedrine. Yep. There are a lot of people of your generation, I'm sounding like an old man now, but what, I'm, what I mean is that it seems like the ADHD and the ADD drugs 
uh, started to get really popular around your age group with, with parents and that sort of thing. Were you having a lot of problems in school and just in general that, that, that you needed that immediately, or was that something they jumped to right away? You know, the answer was I wasn't doing as well as I should have been doing, mm-hmm. and and it really did come down to focus. Okay. I mean, very clearly, I am a textbook case of ADHD. Uh-huh. What, what's interesting is later on in time, as I got sober, mm-hmm. uh, it's actually become a, an incredible asset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you learn how to live with ADHD, if you learn how to multitask, if you learn how to better yourself with it. You know, in school, I would say I was not a highly motivated student. I I was more socially motivated, you know, got tested, loved the extra time they gave you on the test. Uh And they started prescribing these drugs. And I I didn't like them. I mean, I don't, even when I was doing drugs, I don't like drugs in general that speed me up. I was always, I always wanted to come down. I always wanted to slow my mind. Hmm. Um, I always Hmm. felt like I had a very active mind, you know, a lot of dreams when I sleep at night, Mm -hmm. very active in the day, takes me a lot to slow down. Now, if you don't do the dexedrine, if you don't do that or you don't do whatever speeds you up, do you naturally slow down or where do you where does your mind go when you don't have that med? You know, it just goes to staying busy. Um, And so I have to have a lot of information flowing into me from disparate Mm. points, and I can Hmm. harvest a lot of information at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I've learned, and, you know, I think as you get older, there is a part of you that matures out of some of the negative sides of ADHD. Mm-hmm. But for it. me, first of all, being sober goes a long way. And, and I mean that. I don't, I don't mean, you know, dry. I mean truly sober. Yeah, I get that. You know, part of slowing the mind is when I get uh, a little bit out of sorts, it's learning to identify that in myself, mm-hmm. um, communicating with, about it. Mm-hmm. Um, seeking guidance from others, mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. kind of calibrating yourself. Oh, if yeah. you're doing those things, then s- I really feel that somebody with ADD, ADHD, um, is really built to to succeed because you can process, I think, larger amounts of information versus needing to be very linear. But you have to have a, a good way to function and a lot of support around you mm-hmm. in order to do that. And, and I've had that. I've, I've been really blessed to have uh, a lot of people around me, both in my personal life and my work that understand me really well yeah. and, and allow me to sort of be the best version of myself. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly blessed in that way. That's very cool. So for how many years did you take those meds or are you still essentially taking the same meds that you were taking back then? No, no. I have not taken a pill for ADHD since um, getting sober. Um, so You would have been what about? I got sober at 20. So as I like to say, I've never had a legal drink. Okay. So for five years, you were on the dextrin. When when that was prescribed to you, did you do any other work, uh, psychological counseling or therapy? I did light therapy. Typically, was the check-in. You're taking the drugs. How's it going? How's school going? Mm-hmm. Uh, I did one summer go off to a school that was for kids with ADD, and um, it was actually a summer school. So I went to school for summer, and I hated it. 
I saw two kids uh, get in a fight and get kicked out of school. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's a thing. So I went and and got in a fight and got (laughs) to come home early. So I didn't really like being there. I I did actually learn um, some good skill sets, again, for learning, note taking and and, and Mm -hmm. focusing. But you know, I I wanted to get home. Uh, That was actually during the time where I was ramping up in my social scene. I was at that point, I think I was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be back home. Yeah, I get it. You didn't have a legal drink, but I'm assuming that you've had plenty of illegal drinks uh, after (laughs) (laughs) after you moved to Houston. uh, People were they were smoking grass, but were they equally drinking or or was it just mostly grass? I mean, I think we we were drinking, but it was uh, weed was the baseline. We were Uh drinking and then we were doing some other stuff, too. Uh I I think, you know, I, I believe I was an addict before going to college. dependent on weed and then things accelerated more when I went to college. I remember when I was um, about 17, I uh, saw cocaine for the first time. Oh, And I I don't know how to explain this because I I don't believe in an omnipotent, all-knowing God. And there was a feeling that came over me as there was three people in the room, all three did a line of coke and offered it to me. I had this feeling that that was how I was going to die. I I don't know how to explain it. It was one of the strongest feelings I've had in my life. And I knew I was compulsive. I've been compulsive from the age of three, right? That is in me. I -hmm. believe I was an addict before I added drugs to the equation. Yeah. I act, behave, think like an addict. I, if, if I love something, I want a hundred of it. You know, I don't believe in law of diminishing returns. I want... Well, that's classic OCD, isn't it? Yeah, I just want more and more and more. And I'm talking about when I was collecting baseball cards and from a kid, I hated running out of money and not being able to open up one more baseball card pack. <laughs> if I was playing a game, I, I did not want to stop. You know, if I mm. had food, I wanted more. Everything Mm. for me was always more, more, more. Mm -hmm. So I saw cocaine. I was in the room. It was like recoiling from a hot flame. I never touched it. I was so afraid of it. Mm. And, you know, and I told myself that I would never do cocaine because I knew that if I did, it would kill me. And I never Mm -hmm. did cocaine. And to this day, I believe if I had done cocaine or if I ever do cocaine, I believe it's going to kill me. I believe I would love it and I would not be able to stop due to my compulsivity. Yeah, I get that belief system that you're talking about there, because if you're going to have a belief about something, it might as well be that something that you really shouldn't be doing will kill you if you do do it. But I had the same kind of thing when it just comes to getting drunk again. I mean, I don't think I'll make it back. If I go out and drink, you know, not only will I throw away my sobriety, but I'll throw away the thing that I've spent more years of my life doing more more intensely than anything else. And I, I just don't think I would survive. But that's okay. I'm willing to live with that because alcoholism is a deadly disease. And you and I have both known people who've died from cocaine. Oh, my God, yeah. Maybe not necessarily the, the snorting of it, but certainly uh, freebasing and, and crack. To me, that's a healthy fear. So you never did cocaine, but the marijuana aided you in terms of regulating your whatever the drugs were doing for you, huh? Yeah. 
I think it's important to, to say this. You know, when I came in to sobriety, and we'll, uh-huh. I'm a high bottom guy. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I went to college. I accelerated. I definitely used, yeah. you know, a, a lot of other drugs, you know, uh-huh. more hallucinogenics uh-huh. and party type right. drugs. Mm-hmm. I was very fortunate that um, I had deteriorated in school. Um, I deteriorated in both uh, my relationship with my family and how I treated my family. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. became sort of immersed in the culture of drugs. Hmm. And I had an intervention that was done and uh, was put in rehab before I had any real life consequence. I was getting really close. I, I started dealing drugs. Mm-hmm. And I loved dealing drugs. I loved dealing drugs as much as I loved doing drugs mm-hmm. because what I learned is I'm not, I'm just not part of the party. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was bringing the party. Oh, yeah. And I, I loved the sense of control that I had over people calling me and needing me. Huh. And, you know, again, it was part of that culture. So I was very much uh, participating deep in the culture in a way that I was running headfirst into major consequences, but never really had them. And I enjoyed drugs. I did Mm -hmm. until the end. Mm -hmm. I had a very high bottom. I Mm -hmm. I remember when I got into the program, I was actually extending the truth Mm -hmm. of a lot of my using recovery to feel like I fit in with people. To make it sound worse, right? (laughs) Yeah, and what I real and it's crazy. I know that sounds crazy. No, it doesn't. I get it. But like I went to rehab and like these people have these amazing stories. Like, you know, I I never ran from the cops. I never got shot. I don't have anything. And honestly, like there was a part of me that I was like, do do I fit in? Like and what I realized was my truth is I, I had enough for me. When I got sober yeah. And I uh-huh. didn't want to go to rehab. I was right. intervened upon and uh-huh. I was basically told that I would lose the support of my parents, be put on the streets, not mm-hmm. be in college and have no sure. direction yeah. or I'm go to rehab. Uh-huh. And, I, I, and I went to rehab and it was I was 20 years old. I went to University of Arizona. And University of Arizona is just a, a big, big party school. Party school, uh, sure. I joined a fraternity, had a great time there. Again, uh-huh. sort of accelerated in my using, I had to stay behind my sophomore year for summer school because I was basically, I think, a second semester freshman after finishing my <laughs> sophomore year because I dropped so many classes oh, and yeah, I just wasn't yeah. focused. I dropped all my classes. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm, I'm starting to grow marijuana. I'm dealing it. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm in summer school and I dropped my classes again in summer. So I'm there, but basically I've now dropped my classes. Were you keeping that from the folks and, and other people? People. I, I thought I was. Yeah, <laughs> but they found out. out. <laughs> turns out no. You know, and and I I remember I you know twenty year old kid. You, you think you're smart. I I ran out of money and I decided to spend on my emergency credit card, which was my dad's credit card. Yeah. And my thought process was I'm going to spend a bunch of money on the credit card, but I knew I had money coming in from a deal I had done, uh-huh. and uh, my idea was I'm going to go charge my dad's credit card, and uh-huh. I'm going to go 
call the credit card company and pay it off before he ever sees the charges. Not knowing how credit cards really work, (laughs) that you get bills in the mail and you see what people charge. I don't know. I actually don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) My parents had an anniversary. They renewed their vows. Um, Uh I miss my flight home. I miss my parents renewing their vows. Um, I had, you know, to some extent, just not cared about my family of origin, had really estranged myself and just completely engulfed myself in, you know, my what what I thought were friends. Had that started before you got to college? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, I was just getting to be, you know, an older teenage kid who was finding my way through and... How about siblings? Did you do you have siblings? So I do. I have one older brother. Right. Um, and you know, honestly, we had a good relationship growing up. We fought a lot. I mean, yeah. and we were just two different people. I see. Um, so uh-huh. wasn't very close with my brother. Certainly during those years, we just didn't talk. Sure. And then had estranged myself from my parents. I, you know, I tell people part of my story is I'm a high bottom guy. I had a great childhood. One, you know, huge life event in in childhood which shaped me, but I don't have a blame. I believe I was born a very compulsive person. Once drugs were added to the mix, you know, it was game on. Like, I was going to be an addict um, in something, I believe. I I was going to either be an overeater, I was going to be a drug addict, I was going to be something the way I'm kind of built and molded. Yeah. I am so, so grateful that I became a drug addict. Yeah. Because, you know, then I was given such a gift, which was the skill sets of AA, the program for living that I was given. But when I came in to the program, I remember I I tell people I was too everything. Too everything. I was too young. Uh I was too Jewish. I was too high bottom. Right. Like I walked into a meeting, I did not belong. My first yeah. meeting, I heard somebody talk about smoking crack. Somebody come in and talk about how Jesus saved their life. And I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> when I had my intervention, one of the deals I made is I'll go to rehab, but I won't sleep there. That was the deal. So huh. mommy and daddy picked me up, brought me back from Arizona. And, you know, I drove me to rehab every day and picked me up. And I remember when they picked me up from my first day at rehab, I'd gone to a meeting and I was like, you don't understand. I don't belong. I, I don't oh. belong here. Somebody's talking, these guys, you know, people are smoking crack. People are shooting heroin. You know, I'm busting people's anonymity left and right. You wow. know, they're talking about Jesus. Like they're going to try to convert me. Like, wh- what do you, wh- what'd you do? Where are you, where are you putting me? This was July in, in, um, in Arizona. I had, uh, driven to Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, this was after spending on the credit cards doing that story. I had driven sure. to Phoenix to basically, you know, pick up drugs and, and come back to Tucson. Mm-hmm. And we went to Phoenix, we're driving back to Tucson, and mm-hmm. I'm with one of my good friends at the time who was mm-hmm. like my partner in crime. And I said to him, I said, somebody's following us. And he's like, you're nuts. I was like, no, I think somebody's following us. I remember we pulled off the freeway. We go back to our house. I'm not a paranoid guy. That wasn't part of my Uh thing. And we go back to my apartment and I walk in my apartment and it looks like stuff's been moved around. I was like, somebody's been here. And he's like, man, what's, you know, what's wrong with you? I was like, no, like somebody's been here. Uh And, you know, we sit down. I think we watched TV, smoked a couple bowls, went to bed. 
wake up the next morning, and this was July 12th, 1998, and my door gets kicked in, like my front door gets thrown open, everybody down, everybody down, and the next thing I know, I have somebody with his knee in my back basically cuffing me. Oh, my goodness. And in my apartment, I had weed, X, acid, mushrooms, money, you know, 20 hand-blown glass pipes because I collected them because they're art, you know, they're art to me, right? Sure, sure. And um, so, I mean, I was done. I mean, this was the end. And basically get arrested and Uh sat down on the couch next to my buddy who had slept on my couch. And these two guys start yelling at us, we've been following you. We know everything. We've seen you do your drug deals. You're busted. You're done. You know, this was like life just hitting you in the face. I mean, and then they said, you can come in. And then my dad walked in the door who Uh lives in Houston and I'm in Tucson. Oh, wow. Uh And basically my parents had hired private investigators to come follow me to see what I was up to. And they knew everything. And you thought they were law enforcement or DEA? Oh, I, I, no, I thought they were cops. I mean, they were like flashing badges. So these two guys were private investigators or former cops. And so oh, I, okay. thought I, yeah. I thought I was being arrested. Like, I, my life was over. I was over. Wow. I had a grow room in my second bedroom. I would have done a decade with oh. what was in my apartment. And then my dad yeah. walks in. And my dad huh. just looks at me. And I, I'm very close to my dad, always have been. And, mm-hmm. But I thought he knew nothing. So he went from knowing nothing to having been in my apartment and seen everything. Oh, wow. That's wild. And my dad, they said, you can come in. And, um, uh, you know, it was like the biggest sense of relief, but immediately huh. followed by the biggest sense of guilt you can ever imagine. It was like the biggest, you know, melding of wow. emotions yeah, you could yeah. ever feel. And they said, yeah. do you want to say anything? And he looks at me and he just, you know, says the worst thing a father can ever say to his son. I'm yeah. just so disappointed. <laughs> right? Like, That's a killer, man. That's a killer. Right, that was it. That was all. There was, there was no speech. <laughs> there was no anger. It was just, <laughs> you know, like, I'm so disappointed. It was like, oh, my God. Was that his first time visiting you? No, I mean, they, they had been there. But every time they had been there, of course, I clean up my act. You know, they'd come uh, and been to like uh-huh. our fraternity things. I'm like. But I could play the game. I could go on vacation with them. I felt like I was hiding it. But I had a rapid mm-hmm. descent. My my last nine months was pretty rough in the fact that, yeah. again, I was having a great time, but uh-huh. I was destroying everything around me without even realizing it. Did your dad learn about all of this from the private investigators, or did he have some inkling that you were doing all this prior to getting involved with them? They just couldn't figure out what was going on with me. Like, why was I spinning Uh so far out of control? Why was I so distant? Why was I getting such bad grades in school? And they knew Mm -hmm. something was up. And so Uh they finally got the thought that maybe he's got a drug problem. They mm. went and saw this this lady who saved my life. She was my therapist for many, many years and saved my life, just the angel in my life. Yeah. They met and she kind of coached him through what to do. And mm. um, so my dad told me, he goes, you've got two choices. He said, we're going to turn everything over to the cops and you're out. Or... Wow. 
you can go to rehab. I was like, <laughs> pretty easy decision. Like I'm going to rehab. Easy choice. And, and I yeah. went to re- and you know, so I went to rehab. And I remember we flew back through Phoenix, and mm-hmm. there was a moment after we. I had to throw out everything. I had to throw out my all my lovely you know paraphernalia that I cared so deeply about. Sure. Mm-hmm. And um, we flew back from Tucson to Phoenix. Had a layover, and I actually thought about running. I actually thought hmm. about taking off at that point, but I knew what it would do to my relationship with my family. And so I continued back, uh, checked in the next day, had no intention of staying sober. Mm -hmm. And I was about 25 days in, and I remember they asked how, you know, they gave you the speech, only about 10% of you are gonna make a year, you know, who do you, and they said, who here thinks you're gonna make a year? And everybody in the room raised their hand except for me. Honestly, I I was just there to check the box, get through, and my intent was I didn't know if I was an addict. I didn't know, you know, if I had a problem. And I remember they made me write a paper about surrender. And I went home and and wrote a paper about surrender. I I think what I did, if I remember right, is I wrote a a whole paper. It was about three pages, uh, something about the Peloponnesian War. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, I brought it back. I really studied and I gave my 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 all. And she just said, you just you don't get it. Don't she get said, it. you yeah. don't understand what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she proceeded to tell me that I could restart my 30 day program 30 days in. So I spent 60 days in a 30 day treatment program. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was the best thing that happened to me because it took time for me to distance myself from my using Mm. to see the consequences not just of what i'd done right but where i was going yeah i always wanted to be successful i always wanted i really really wanted to make an impact in this world Mm -hmm. and when i was sitting in rehab my my epiphany really came in in a couple of moments number one was Somebody, I was outside of a meeting, and an old timer mm-hmm. said to me, he "Goes, did you have you ever lied to your parents?" And I was like, "Well, yeah." Mm-hmm. He's like, "Have you ever cheated or stole from your parents?" Yeah. He's like, "Have you ever hit your parents?" I was like, "Actually, yeah, I slapped my mom one time. I, I remember mm-hmm. that." And he said, "What would you do to somebody that did that to your parents?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "The thing is, is that we start acting and behaving in mm-hmm. a different way." when yeah. the drugs take over. And and they mm-hmm. it really did make me sacrifice my morals, my values, my ethics. And mm-hmm. you know, you'd hear people talk about my standards, you know, right. my actions yeah. were actually falling mm-hmm. quicker than my standards and mm-hmm. and that's what was happening for me. And it took me being in sobriety in rehab. That was my time to actually sit back and reflect. And my reflection, again, this high bottom moment for Uh me, I was ready to get off of the ride, Uh not because of where it had taken me to, but because I had enough time that I could clearly see where I was going. And I was 20 years old. I'd gone nowhere in college. I had Uh an identity crisis essentially there. Say, It was very clear that I was going nowhere. Right. So I made a deep commitment at that point. to get to a year of sobriety, they told me, told me we, all, we can always refund your misery. And, yeah, right. you know, yeah. and I made that commitment, got a sponsor, decided I was going to work the steps. 
Uh-huh. And decided I was going to throw myself into it because I, I just had nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. And I realized that the path I was on just wasn't one that I was proud of. That was my epiphany. That was really my moment in just saying, I'm going to give it a shot and, and seeing myself differently. You were there for a total of 60 days. At what point did you have this light bulb moment? It was probably around day 35. Really? Um, yeah. So, so there was a few things I went through in rehab. One is just kind of going through being in meetings every day and yeah, just yeah. looking around and saying, you know, part of it was hearing those people telling the stories that were 40 and 50 and 60 and going, I don't even want to give it a chance to end up like that. <laughs> yeah. And I remember I actually stayed in treatment for a total of 90 days. I did, a, uh-huh. I did an IOP afterwards. And I remember I was finishing my IOP. We could go around the room and it's kind of the end of rehab mm-hmm. for any, you know, you're checking out and everybody says nice yeah. things to you yeah. and, you know, yeah. keep coming back. And, mm-hmm. and I remember Ed said something to me that I can't get out of my brain and it's mm-hmm. in me every single day. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, Randy, he said, I've seen a lot of people come through this treatment. Mm-hmm. And he said, you may have some of the most potential that I've seen of anybody that's come through here. Hmm. And I was so proud when he said that. Wow. And he said, but you know, when somebody tells you you have potential, that's an insult. He goes, because what you're doing is you're wasting talent. He goes, nobody tells Michael Jordan he has potential. Right. He goes, right now you're just wasted talent. Uh And he goes, Uh I hope that you can fulfill your talent. And my life's goal now is to make sure nobody thinks I have potential anymore. (laughs) I'm telling you, it stuck with me. It branded me. Yeah. And it crawled into my brain and never left me. That's a great frame of mind to have. I mean, and also to pass on. I've heard that before. I have a sponsor who said very similar things to me early on. One of the things he said was, and I've said this in other interviews, uh, he said, be careful of telling people what you're going to do or your intentions or what, in this case, your potential, because you can get enough satisfaction from their response to that, that you never actually have to engage in what it is you've got the potential for or your intentions to do. You know, his whole thing was do it and let people see it and then you don't have to talk about it. Sounds like that's what you got from Ed. I did. And, and you know, I, I grew up in a small South Texas town. I grew up in McAllen, Texas. Sure. Uh-huh. So I was born there. And my best friend from birth, uh, his brother was my brother's best friend. My brother was older and he right. was my best friend. And our parents mm-hmm. were best friends and we were essentially wow. raised together. Uh, his name was Jeff. And at six, he developed a brain tumor. And ended up passing away from it. Uh, When Jeff was diagnosed with a brain tumor, I didn't see him anymore. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't really told what was going on with him other than he was sick. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I remember my brother went to his brother's birthday party and I hadn't seen Jeff in about six or eight months. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how long it had been, but it'd been a while. Sure. And my dad pulls up to the bowling alley. I run in to go get my brother and bring him back to the car. And there's a kid in a wheelchair with a tray shaved head or or lost all his hair. Uh and barely recognizable and i went up and i didn't know i didn't know he would look like i didn't it's burned into my head what a shock and i talked to him for like a minute and then i ran out crying and you were six at the time this happened i was six 
Wow. And Jeff passed away, I don't know, time depth at, time depth at that age, but sure. passed away a few months later. Right. I didn't go to the funeral. I wasn't allowed to. I was, I just, I, I was totally passed and that was it. That was the end of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever really talked about it. Uh-huh. And there was a few things that happened. This is predating using, but I think sure. has a lot to do with my wanting to numb. Yeah. And that the reason that statement by Ed about potential hurt me so much. I remembered not trusting God. Yeah. I remembered feeling like at eight, nine, ten years old, sitting there at night, going to sleep, going, where, where is he? What's happening? What's happening to his soul? And then yeah. by the time I reached my teenage years, when something good happened, uh-huh. I had guilt because he never had the opportunity. And huh. when I screwed something up, I felt terrible because I was screwing up an opportunity he never had. I lived in this crazy sort of, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, binary box where yeah. if, if something was great, I couldn't accept it. And if mm-hmm. something was bad, it was worse because I had failed. So when Ed says something to me like, you have potential, but you're a waste of talent. Mm-hmm. What I feel is I'm wasting an opportunity that he didn't even get. Wow. And part of me getting sober, part of me working my fifth step mm-hmm. for the first time was mm-hmm. digging into that feeling of, loss. Uh, my, my work was letting him go yeah, and not having that hang over me and not feeling like I had to live my life for him. Now, wow. to this day, in a lot of my life, I, I uh-huh. don't have a relationship with his parents. His mother, I right. saw years later, and she, she mm-hmm. had trouble seeing me because yeah. it's yeah. the yeah. sort of pacing of where he would uh-huh. be. Yeah. But I try to live every day honoring him um, Mm -hmm. and honoring the life that he lived and the influence that he had on me. Mm -hmm. But I've, you know, been able to let go of some of that release and guilt of having opportunities that others don't. But I don't forget. I I really deeply want to give back in this life in his honor. And so that's something that's a big, big part of me. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book podcast, the complete, unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast is produced by Howard L., who receives no remuneration for this vital AA service work. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. What were you being told back then when you're a kid, you're seven, eight, nine years old, having to deal with this thing, which is just absolutely uh, devastating to anybody, but to a six-year-old who doesn't even get a chance to understand it. Were you being given any messages about a higher power or God, or what kind of messages were you getting from people around you or institutions to help you deal with that, or did you not get anything? Nothing. So a couple things, right? So you piece the pieces together. Number one is... 
Jeff dies, nobody talks to me about it. And huh. I literally okay. in my room, the only thing I have is a bear that was, he had when he passed and that was given to right. me. And I, I have that bear mm. still in my house. Yeah. Uh, but we didn't talk about it. And then huh. I'm ADD kid who goes to temple. Right. To me, I was learning a lot of boring stuff. Right. I didn't want to yeah. be there. I'm a hyper kid. They couldn't rein right. me in. Um, mm-hmm. As I got to 10, 11, 12, I start training for my bar mitzvah. I didn't like the rabbi. Right. He didn't like me because um, uh-huh. I didn't yeah. want to be there. I didn't really connect with religion and uh-huh. I didn't trust God. Because it was the, the yeah. same question, the obvious question, like, how could God let this happen to a six-year-old? Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my belief in God is not the omnipotent, all-knowing. My belief in a mm-hmm. higher power came really through working the steps a few times. It took me a mm-hmm. while to find my version of spirituality and God. Um, I found it in a new pair of glasses, actually. Did you find it retrospectively? I mean, oftentimes we don't know or cannot sense God working in our lives until he's just done it and we look back. Is that the kind of awareness that you had of God was in retrospect? I mean, I can see where I've been really blessed. I I don't Mm -hmm. think that's where I, I came to it. There were two parts of my belief in a higher power. The first one is I finally reconciled myself to the perspective being more intellectual about it than I probably should have been. Yeah, yeah. The first sort of crack in my belief, in being able to believe, was I got right. to the point of I'd rather believe in God and be wrong than not believe and be right. So that was <laughs> that was my first thing. Like I like just throw yourself into it, and if you're wrong, who cares, right? But if right, there is no God right. and you're right. That's a pretty sad place to be. So, like, let's yeah. go with the other one. Like, that was kind of where I started with that. So, so that's a, that's no lose right there. That's a no lose situation. Well, right. So that allowed me to sort of embark on, you know, the idea. Okay, there's so many people out there that believe. So many priests, clergy, rabbis yeah. out there. How can they all be wrong? And I started piecing all that together. But then yeah. w- where I found my God, and, and I just mentioned it, which was a new pair of glasses, yeah. was where, you know, Chuck C. talks about ego. And he talks about, you know, easing God out, the conscious mm-hmm. separation from, and that God is either everything or he is nothing. And where I found my God and my, where my belief in my higher power today is, is that uh-huh. I love seeing you. I love seeing you at meetings and I find you to be an egoless person to talk to, to love, to hug, to be around. Mm-hmm. And my Thank belief you. is, is that when two people or more come together and mm-hmm. deflate their ego, that mm-hmm. that part of God can come out and that there's a piece of God in all of us, right? Mm-hmm. And when you go to a mm-hmm. God meeting, it's because you have a lot of people there that aren't selfish or self-centered in the moment, um, but yeah. are there to share openly and to love each other. You yeah. know, my yeah. relationship with my wife, my relationship with my kids is as egoless as I can make it. Uh-huh. And when we do, there's just that bigger piece of God. And that's what I've latched onto. And, uh-huh. you know, what that tells me is that I've got to put goodness out there. Right. I've got to be egoless in my behavior with other people, in uh-huh. how I approach 
opportunities to help. Uh Um, and I got to let my peace of God out. And so, you know, that's really where my higher powers come from, but it lines up for me really with my sobriety. It lines up with my want to do service work. Right. It lines up to my willingness to accept help and be open with other men. Well, you know what it strikes me as, too, and as you were just describing that, I was thinking of the term spiritual maturity (laughs) from the standpoint that what you're describing right there that you've been able to take to your relationships, not only with men and women in the program, but with your wife and with your kids, it's a mature spiritual position that is the outcome of the work that you did in the program to get to where you needed to get to. What would you tell somebody who's relatively new in sobriety, maybe even within their first couple of years, about how long it took for you to get to that comfortability with that or or for you to get to that place where you could have this belief and really believe it? You know, I definitely was a fake it till you make it guy. You Uh know, I I said I was going to make it to my first year. I went to 600 meetings in my first year. I volunteered when I didn't. I'd just gotten sober. I volunteered at AA Intergroup when I got out of treatment. Mm-hmm. I immersed myself in the program. Hmm. Again, high bottom. I could yeah. stay off drugs. I could stay off alcohol, especially sure. after like detoxing myself. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, so it wasn't until I had my core rocked that I mm-hmm. really got the test of do I really want to stay sober? And do I really want to dig deeper? And Hmm. what happened was I I had been dating a a girl in the program. We'd been dating a while. We're very, very close. Mm -hmm. And we were also part of a very tight-knit group of young people in sobriety. So there was about eight of us that were very, very close, Mm -hmm. including my best friend. And she actually cheated on me with my best friend. This is my core group of sober mm-hmm. young people. We go to all of our meetings together. We go out to dinner afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I got both embarrassed, right? Like mm-hmm. my girlfriend yeah. slept with my best friend. Everybody knows I, I can't go back to my meetings. I, yeah. What am I going to do? It shook me to the core and challenged everything I just put together in my sobriety. And, and honestly ended up being probably one of the best things that happened to me. Yeah. Um, number one is our relationship wasn't healthy to begin with. But number right. two, that was the moment. That mm. was the moment where line in the sand, mm-hmm. do I really want to keep doing this? Do I really want to stay sober? Mm-hmm. And this is when I went from you know, a lot of co-ed and young people's meetings, I had to go find a different place to be. I see. And that's when I started going to Alder Street, Avenue B, these men's meetings. Men's meetings, that yeah. I moved from a group of young people being my uh-huh. peer group right. to surrounding myself with the men that I call my heroes. Mm-hmm. And so I transitioned my meetings. I went to these meetings where there was just unbelievable people like mm-hmm. George J and Dan D, Pat C, Todd yeah. R, like all these guys, sure. you know, who, you know, I, I would listen to these guys and they were amazing husbands and yeah. fathers and businessmen. And mm-hmm. it was this transition in my life that that was my maturity moment. This was my 
I've got to grow up. I've got to move out. And I, at that point, I remember vividly thinking it was almost like starting over. I couldn't yeah. go to the same meetings. I couldn't be around the same people. Well, how old were you when this happened? I was 22. Okay, so so you'd been in the program for two years. 18 months. Been in the program for 18 months, hanging with the young people, having that situation happen to you that rocked your world there. That left you relatively weakened in your resolve to stay sober? Or were you? did you have any place to go with that, uh, with that feeling that you had after that situation? The guy, my best friend, we actually shared the same sponsor. So I couldn't oh, even run whoa. to my sponsor. Whoa. Right? So it was like I was on an island. Oh, my. Yeah. But I surprised myself. I had every excuse to relapse. I had every excuse to run, put it behind me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to. I had had enough blessings to that point mm. in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, I had immersed myself enough that by this time I had started my first company uh, mm-hmm. at 21 years old, right? had enrolled back in school, mm-hmm. had put my life back together and was proud of the person that I was becoming. Mm-hmm. And sure. I, I wasn't willing to give that up. Hmm. And hmm. I liked who I was sober. I believe that a lot of people, or most people I've talked to as they get sober, they have that line in the sand moment where it's literally, you know, which it's the fork in the road. And that was my fork in the road. But that fork in the road was so important to me because it tested my resolve and taught me what was really important to me. And I didn't know that. Was that a spiritual turning point for you as well? You know, what I would say is yes. It was a massive ego deflating moment. Yeah, I get it. And that ego deflation mm-hmm. allowed me to be teachable. That mm-hmm. It allowed me to seek help. It mm-hmm. allowed me to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I had to go get a new sponsor. So I went to my therapist and I was like, this is what happened. I need to get a new sponsor. I need to go do this. And she said, I've got the perfect person for you. Uh-huh. And she introduces me to David, who was my second sponsor. Now he's, he's, he's since passed away, who was a gay man and mm-hmm. who took mm-hmm. me to meetings and was mm-hmm. completely different than anybody I'd ever been close to. Hmm. And it was amazing because... My first sponsor, Ron Kay, amazing guy, takes a ton of people through the steps, oh, yeah. falls it by the book, love uh-huh. the guy to death and forever grateful for him. Right. This was somebody who was a deeply emotional member of AA, which I was not. I get it. Uh-huh. And I remember David telling me, he said, every answer from you is from your mind. Right. He says, you need to start answering from your heart. And David broke the steps down in a different way for me, which were Mm -hmm. emotional, spiritual, and and deep in a different Mm. way. And he really Mm. challenged me and called me on my BS and challenged me deeply. And he said, you know, Randy, everything you see is black or white, black or white, black or white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Uh, He goes, I'm going to teach you about gray. Part of it was learning how to, I think he taught me a lot about how to love. I think he taught Mm -hmm. me how to lot about how to be vulnerable. He taught me Mm -hmm. a lot about how to heal um, Mm -hmm. and was the perfect person for me and couldn't Mm -hmm. have been more different than me. I remember I felt very uncomfortable 
going yeah. to an AA meeting that was all gay and lesbian. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't belong sure. here. And yeah. he said, you do belong here because you're just yeah. a member of AA. And the more time I spent there, the more I loved it. Yeah. It, you know, but it was like, I was afraid yeah. of what you don't know. And David yeah. was just, you know, such an incredible, loving, supporting man and loved uh-huh. me and taught me how to be a man differently. Yeah, so he opened up a, a spiritual dimension that had been closed off. A hundred percent. I, I was mm. highly transactional as a person, and really? he opened up my heart. So how long did he sponsor you for before he passed away? So David sponsored me for about five years and then ended up moving away. Um, he moved away and, and died four or five years later. Did you get yourself another sponsor at the time? I did, and I went through sort of like a little bit of time where I had a bridge where I didn't have a sponsor. Yeah, I get it. And then I remember I asked Scott B. to be my sponsor, uh-huh. and I met with yeah. Scott B. one time. I don't even know if he'll remember this, and I sat down with him. And Scott B. is a deep step work guy, just deep oh, in the yeah, program. He he's, mm-hmm. he's an onion peeler. Oh, yeah. And I I sat down with Scott, and he gave me my step one work, which was probably more work than all the work I'd done in the program today. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, I remember leaving him. I was like, well, I guess he's not going to be my sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) And I love Scott. Scott's one of my favorite people on this earth, and we're so close to this day. Again, I I drifted for a bit, but I knew I, I needed to stay connected. And it took me a little while. It took me about another six or eight months and I remember I had asked George J to be my sponsor, and he was full at the time. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't remember what it was, but I had another tough moment, and it was time to mm-hmm. really get into the steps again. And I asked George mm-hmm. J again, and he said yes. And so George J has been my sponsor um, since that time. And you guys went back through the steps? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll be doing uh, my fifth step tomorrow. So we're in the steps again now. And wow. I, I've got a, I've got a fifth step to do tomorrow. And I'll, I'll tell you what's interesting about that is, you uh-huh. know, 23 or sober now going through the steps. Life is very, very full. And, and just right. you know, I've, I've had just incredible blessings in my life. And I was doing yeah. my fourth step this time and I was really struggling because uh-huh. um, I want to dig deep and I want to put uh, I want to be thorough. And I was yeah. doing my fourth step. And it's weak. I'm like going to yeah. my fifth step, and it's like I would do my fifth step right here on recording. <laughs> and what I, I realized it. is now that I live a pretty clean life yeah. and I live a life that I, I live out loud. And so what happens is I don't carry a lot of resentment, anger, and fear. And when I yeah. have it, I clean it up pretty quickly. Yeah, there's some stuff on there, and there's some stuff I got to get through, but like, and there's definitely some stuff I need to look inward on, Yeah. especially, you know, in my role of being a family member, a father, a son, what have you. There's some stuff I need to look up. That's all natural. I mean, you know, anytime I've done, uh, and I've done more than, than one or two or three, probably four or five fourth steps over all the years. But it's funny when you get to those later fourth steps, you do find yourself digging where has already been dug. 
And the cool thing about doing a fifth step with a guy who knows you pretty well is he's going to know when you're just rehashing the same stuff you dealt with last time. The fact that you're willing to, on a daily basis, do what you're doing to keep the resentment factor to a minimal amount, you know, I mean, gee whiz, you can you could probably clean up almost everything you do with a tenth step every day, huh? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, um, I, I'd like to think that I live pretty clean. Um, yeah. You know, that doesn't mean I haven't stepped on toes that I'm not aware of or I haven't negatively oh, yeah. affected people in, in ways that I haven't. You've remained human, so that's a good thing. Now, what's your relationship like with the men that you sponsor? What, what does it reflect? You know, I, I think it goes back to wanting to be of service and, and be mm-hmm. um, ego deflating. You know, I, I've sponsored a guy recently who was estranged from his daughter when he got sober. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent a lot of time as a father now. I have an, an eight-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old son. Hmm. And I mm-hmm. have an incredible wife who's such a blessing to me. And Did you meet her in the program? So, no. She was my cousin's best friend from childhood. We actually have a picture at summer camp together. When we were 12, when I got sober at 20, that was one of the big challenging things is how am I ever going to find somebody? How am I ever going to get out and date and, um, and, and just uh, found somebody who's perfect for me. So your relationship has been informing the way that you work with guys on their relationship. Absolutely. And being a father, you know, I was working Mm -hmm. with this guy and I said, you know, your primary purpose is to stay sober and help others Mm -hmm. to recover from alcoholism. Your Mm -hmm. secondary purpose is to repair the relationship with your daughter. Mm. And everything else doesn't matter. Mm. How's he been doing with that? Great, I'm so proud of him for re-engaging, leaning in, and you know, he did a great job. Being estranged is tough, because you can't push your way back. And his job there was, he was, rock steady and reliable and kind of let his daughter and his daughter's mother Mm -hmm. come to him seeing that he's reliable and Mm -hmm. accountable and it's just been a beautiful Mm. thing to watch and so Mm -hmm. you know my relationship with the guys i work with i i i I tend to take myself too seriously i have a very very busy work schedule life schedule Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I had more time with people in recovery. What I've realized about myself is in some ways, and I I think this is because of my experience with David, I think Uh I'm a better second sponsor than first sponsor. And so I I don't, I don't know what that says about me. And maybe, you Uh know, like I have guys that come in and the guys who are like, on the edge and just new and just drying out. Yeah, I don't yeah. find that maybe it's, the, you know, I, I see guys that they sponsor so many guys. And I honor that so much and I, I want to be there. It's just I don't yeah. think that I connect as well and I'm a, as good of a guide as I am against men who have been through the steps once. Mm-hmm. And I'm helping them find a program for living. And I'm helping them rework the steps on people, Uh places, and things. And uh, I love taking people to the steps, actually, in a new pair of glasses. 
Um, it, it's just a little bit different. And I think part of it is, is the availability. It's hard for me to be on call at all times. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's also part of your maturing as a man, as a husband, as a father. You're gaining different life experiences now in your sobriety that speak to different things that men need when they come to you to be their sponsor. Yeah. And for me, what I found is I have a handful of guys who I've sponsored for going on 30 years. Wow. Uh, I've got others who I've sponsored for, for lesser amounts of time. But some of the guys that I've gotten more recently have been men who have had sponsors who have passed away or whatever else. But what's interesting about it is I find that one of the best ways I can be of service to the new guy is to hook him up with one of the guys I sponsor. And you've seen yeah. me do this before in meetings. I'll grab guys and say, you know, come over here to one of my sponsees and I'll be talking to the guy who's just come in and I'll, I'll put them together. I'll say, you need to trade phone numbers and you guys need to talk tomorrow and just do that. And when it's worked out, later on I can say, well, I guess I was a pretty good sponsor to this man because he's being a good sponsor to the next yeah. man. And, you know, with, with being grateful instead of proud of myself, I'm grateful that I can be of service in that way. I see a guy like you who's got all these great life experiences being a, a successful businessman, a successful father, a great sponsor, a great friend, all these other great things. It's understandable that you're stretched because you've got a young family. And when my family was young, when my kids were young and I wanted to go to a meeting, I knew and my wife knew that that was indeed taking some time away from the rest of the family. Yeah. And so balancing that has been a, over the years, it was a big challenge, but I was able to go to other men who had done it successfully. You're, the, you're that kind of guy too, aren't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it goes back to my compulsivity, right? So yeah. my work week is a 50 to 60 hour work week. I can't help yeah. myself. I've had success. I run mm -hmm. a company, sure. um, you know, and then my, the rest of my time is my family. And, you know, I tell yeah. people this and, and I tell people this inside and outside of the program. I say, I'm a husband. I'm a father of two children. Uh, uh -huh. I'm sober and I run a company. You now know everything about right. me. I don't have hobbies. I, I don't. Right. I love what I do for a living. I love the impact uh -huh. that I have there. My yeah. hobbies tend to be um, some of the organizations that I work with where we can influence, you know, but I live out loud about my sobriety. Yeah. Almost anybody that has a meal with me, even working with me, uh, mm -hmm. knows I'm sober. And the reason is, is that That's cool. I want anybody who ever needs help or knows somebody that needs help to know that they can reach out to me. Yeah. That happened recently. I had a very dear friend in the program. Her husband, mm -hmm. it turns out, has been an alcoholic for several years. She did not know who to call, and I got wow. the call. And I want that call. And I am yeah. not embarrassed that I am sober. I am so well, proud because my heroes in the program taught me to be proud of it and grateful at the oh, same yeah, time i mean totally. god is actually in in a lot of ways i think he places us in situations and with people that we need to be with and uh one of the great things about doing this interview show is that these are people i've known my whole sobriety and some of them and yet i i really don't know that much about them you know we we, we learn about each other even if we go out to lunch or dinner from time to time the opportunity to really get to know people and get to know what's in their heart 
frankly, it, it takes time. It takes time. And, you know, when you're a young father and you're running a business and you're working a lot and you're trying to stay sober by doing as many meetings as you can or sponsoring as many people as you can, there isn't time for anything else. That's been my experience. But later on, the kids will grow up. They'll go to college. They'll move away from home. Uh, and you'll find yourself with some additional time on your hands. And uh, so whatever it is that you enjoy, I mean, I, I love the fact that, that I can go to a lot more meetings now than I could when my kids were small. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. I, you know, and the reason is, is that I see all my best friends. The, you know, the one thing I've done right the whole time besides, yeah. you know, not drinking is I stay connected to guys in the program because I love these guys. Yeah, it's not course. work, right? Huh. And when my ass is falling off or I need to talk, I pick up the yeah. phone and I call Todd or I call George or I call Dan or I call George G. I mean, and, and it's not work to call them because they yeah. love me and I love them and it's just easy. And yeah. um, this uh, podcast, thank you for doing it. Because yeah. during COVID, it became even more difficult to stay connected and, you know, yeah. going on Zoom meetings, but, you know, literally listening to podcasts between work and home driving or going out for a, a run and, and listening to it and plugging in, you know, yeah. those are the moments, you know, I went to um, an international convention. I've, I've been to a few of them. And if anybody's listening, uh -huh. there's one thing you yeah. should do in your sobriety, <laughs> get yeah. to the international yeah. convention. Nothing like yeah, the first one I went to was uh, was 18 months sober. And uh, I remember being in a stadium full of people and saying the serenity prayer and saying the Lord's yeah. prayer. And it's just, you're with 50,000 people and they're all like you yeah. and everybody loves you and you love them. And it's just awesome. Um, and to walk around the city and just be greeting people in the streets, you see that little tag around their neck and you know that they're, they're a brother or a sister. Well, that's one of the things I like about Zoom now is that I can I can participate internationally. Whereas when I've gone to the conventions, it's always neat to meet people from other parts of the world. Sounds to me like you've got an extraordinary life right now. And to hear you speak about these other people, what's cool about the podcast is that when you're listening, you're listening to people you know. Yeah. And so you can listen from a different perspective, a perspective of knowing what's in their heart and hearing them express it in a, in a really grateful way. And to me, your story is really inspiring. And it's still evolving. I mean, you've been sober 23 years now. You're still a relatively young man. And, and with two kids, you know, the, the interesting thing is uh, the time frame here is interesting because you've got two kids who it's not going to be long before they're of that age. Yes. I hope that they yeah. stay away yeah, from sure. drugs and alcohol. Um, just recently, and I, I, this is something I'll be processing with my sponsor i need to start thinking about how to message to my kids you know about me being sober they they've never known obviously they're eight and eleven i'm mean, over 23 years at what point do you start sharing with them that you know your dad had a problem and i'm sober now and i'm grateful to be sober and i, I you know i don't know how to do that i don't know how to have yeah. that conversation but i know who to have that conversation with yeah. that can tell me how to do yeah. that i'm 43 and everything i go through it's like i have a cheat yeah. code yeah. for life and that cheat code is uh, when i don't know what to do it's either either in the books or in the steps. 
And when I still don't know what to do, I pick up the phone and I can call people who tell me how to do. I have this incredible network, this incredible Uh program around me that had I not gotten sober, I would have never been able to be a successful husband or father or businessman. Mm -hmm. I tell people I spent some of my most formative years, the the time that you're really Uh shaping your Mm -hmm. social function. I spent arresting my social function with drugs. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, my natural tendency is still in a lot of ways to think like an addict. And it's taken a lot of time and energy and work and it's taken a lot yeah. of guidance to shape me into a vulnerable, sober, hopefully lower ego man. Yeah. And it's all because of the gifts of the program because left to my own tendencies, I'm an addict. The the wiring is still in place. You know, for me, uh, I have to acknowledge the fact that left to my own devices, left to a period of time where I skip meetings and when I stop returning calls or stop praying or stop being of service, that hard wiring will carry me right back to behavior, and it'll be worse because it, it, it will have come at the expense of an otherwise good program. Whereas, you know, when we're first sober, you know, what do we got it to compare it to? How life was before we got sober? But when I see guys slip, one of the first things I ask them is, what was true about your sobriety that stopped being true? What was there that you were doing or not doing that was helping you stay sober that you changed to the point that you drank? And so it's beautiful to keep that humility that you're talking about. And I I see you as a humble man, and I'm glad to see you on a regular basis now. This is what I needed today was to talk to you and just kind of hook into uh, Randy Elf. The time's flown by, man. I think that's how it is with us brothers. I love you, man. I, and I appreciate you and, and the man that you are in recovery and, and such a center point of recovery uh, for the men in, in Houston and what you've done with this podcast. It's just this is such a gift and, and knowing you is a gift. Thanks for doing this today, brother. You're the best. Absolutely. Love you, brother. Thank you so much. Well, my friends, that's it for another episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Randy L. for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word about it by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast will be of help to more and more people. And if you rate this podcast highly wherever you get it, that'll help others find it more easily. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. Simply tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's Howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>